talk about a resilient identity in the face of rejection. A resilient identity in the face of rejection. Now, uh, I think from a very early age, a lot of us learn to crave acceptance and to fear rejection. I remember, uh, gosh, I think it was in, in fourth grade, I remember like, like it was yesterday, uh, I, had a, I was in a class and I had somehow offended or upset the most popular kid in school. His name was Shane Holloway. I still remember his name. I got on his bad side. And so Shane, uh, for whatever reason, wanted to humiliate me. And so uh, he devised a plan. At recess, he uh, kind of created a mock uh, kickball game, and him and his friend were like the team captains. And they lined everybody up to uh, get picked on teams for this game. And so they went through, and each one of them picked everybody. One by one, people got picked for the team. And then they came to me, and uh, Shane said, well, I'm done picking. And the other guy said, well, I'm done. Let's go play. And they left me standing there all by myself, feeling totally rejected, totally alone. I'm still in counseling today because of this. But I still remember how painful it was to be rejected. And we fear rejection for good reason. Uh, to be rejected is painful, isn't it? In fact, uh, researchers say that uh, being rejected is, is just as painful as, uh, as being uh, afflicted uh, physically. So, for example, uh, MRI studies show that the same areas of the brain become activated when, it, when we experience rejection as when we experience physical pain, right? In fact, some studies, studies showed that when participants who had been rejected uh, took Tylenol, they actually uh, got, their, their emotional pain became less. And those people that didn't take Tylenol, you know, they still felt, felt the pain. And so uh, rejection can feel almost like physical pain, can it? Another thing is we can uh, relive and re-experience the pain of rejection more than physical pain. You ever notice this? Like you could think back about, it, you know, with a time where you were physically hurt or whatever, and you could remember that. But when you go back and you experience a time when you were rejected, like you could almost relive that, can't you? You could almost re-feel all the pain again. I mean, it's just one of these things that you could relive and re-experience again and again and again. Uh, another thing is that rejection, uh, the reason why it's so painful is it destabilizes our need to belong. When you're rejected, you kind of have a, somewhat of a, a crisis of identity. Right? When, when you feel left out, ostracized, uh, put out, you, know, you kind of start, start thinking like, what's wrong with me? Like, who am I really? Do, do I belong? Where do I belong? And so rejection can be a really, really big deal. Now, why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because uh, the Christians that Peter was writing to in this letter were experiencing deep rejection. So uh, just to kind of recap, this is a, a letter that, that Peter writes to you to Christians in the Roman world, and he calls them exiles, and they were a persecuted minority. And what this means is that, uh, you know, th they weren't so much experiencing physical uh, persecution. Uh, a lot of scholars say that would happen later, uh, it wasn't happening here. They weren't being tortured. They weren't being killed, at least not at this point. They were simply experiencing social uh, marginalization. So uh, their beliefs were being mocked in the culture. Uh, family members were disowning them. Uh, they were uh, being uh, diminished and uh, rejected by uh, colleagues and peers. They were being rejected. 
And this is painful. And it brings a crisis of identity. And so what Peter does is he's writing here in this passage to help these people face their rejection, to help us face rejection if we're experiencing it. I don't know if you've ever been rejected for your Christian faith or, or for things that you believe, but how do you handle that? How do you handle re rejection with resilience? How do you deal with that sort of thing? What Peter says is if you're ever going to handle it, you've got to know who you are. You need to know your identity. And so that, that's what Peter does in these verses. He, he talks about our identity. He tells us who we are. He reminds us of, of the, the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ and what all that means. And he says, if you know this, you're going to be able to be a person that can face rejection. Don't you want that? Let me show you three things today. Uh, number one, we're going to see the bad news of our new identity. Second of all, we're going to see the good news of our identity. And then finally, we're going to see how our identity makes us resilient in the face of rejection. Three things. Uh, let's just go through them. So first, uh, Peter says, uh, I need to tell you that there is somewhat of, of, of a bad news that comes with your new identity. Let's see what he says here. Verse 4, Peter says, As you come to him, uh, a, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, uh, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What Peter is saying is that when you come to Jesus, uh, you come to him uh, more than just to get salvation. You come to him more than just to get eternal life. You come more to him uh, to get more than just forgiveness. When you come to Jesus, you get a new identity. Can I get an amen? Right, so, so when you are, become a Christian, your identity is completely restructured by Jesus Christ. And what that means is that whatever is true of Jesus, the things that are true about Jesus, uh, when you're a Christian, they also become true about you. Peter says, uh, you come to him as a living stone. Then in verse 5, he says, you yourselves also are living stones. So just as Jesus was a living stone, so are you. What's true about Jesus is also true about you. He also uh, brings up this metaphor of a building. He says you're uh, living stones being uh, built together into a building. And he says Jesus is the chief cornerstone. What is the chief cornerstone? Well, it's the stone that you put in a building at the very foundation. It's a stone that defines and aligns all the other stones so that the building is straight, so you have the right shape to the building. And what Peter is saying is that if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ defines you. Uh, if you're a Christian, you align yourself so much to Jesus so that what's true about him is also true about you. Now you're saying, well, what's bad about this? This is good news. What do you mean bad news of our identity? Well, listen, what's true about Jesus? The first thing that Peter tells us is that Jesus, he's the cornerstone. And he's a stone that was rejected by the builders. Jesus was rejected. In fact, uh, Jesus uses the same uh, ultimate scripture about the cornerstone to describe the fact that, that he was rejected by people. He came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. Uh, Jesus was an equal opportunity offender. So he, he uh, offended the religious people, and he, he offended the, uh, the, the, the Romans. Uh, Jesus was a scandal in the world. So that finally he was uh, crucified as an ultimate picture of his rejection. What Peter says is that if you're a Christian, you're aligning yourself with the rejected cornerstone. And if Jesus was rejected, well, guess what? Part of your identity in the world is a scandal. 
Part of associating with Jesus is that you will be rejected just like he was. Now you think about this for a little bit. You know, you know some, some relationships that you have are, they open doors for you, right? You know, you might, you might attach yourself to a rising star, you know, you, somebody who's popular, so that you, you, know, you might rise with them, so that those people open doors for you. This is what marketing, uh, uh, networking is about, you know? You, you make friendships with people that are advantageous, that open doors, that help you move up the, the social ladder. What Peter is saying is that Jesus is not that kind of relationship. In fact, more often than not, associating with Jesus is going to close doors for you in the world. Associating with Jesus is going to lead to less power and less influence. It's not going to move you up the corporate ladder or social ladder. When you identify with Jesus, in many, ta- in many ways it leads to downward mobility. Do you know that? Peter is saying, first, if you're going to handle rejection at all, you need to know this about your identity. I mean, just part, part and parcel of, of attaching yourself to Jesus Christ is that you, you take on the scandal. You move to the margins just like he was. You move into a place where you face social rejection. Uh, Jesus uh, said it himself. He says, a servant is not above his master. If they hated me, what? They're going to hate you too. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. He says, the messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of the time, end of time. They will be blamed for all the division which rend cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life, for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. The disciples will be sorely tempted to desert their Lord. But they must hold on and persevere. Only he will be blessed who remains loyal to Jesus and his word until the end. Bonhoeffer's saying this. He's saying, when you associate with Jesus, this will lead to hatred, rejection. Now, I want to be careful with this because uh, Peter is not saying that, that when you identify with Jesus, you ought to just uh, expect to have a bad reputation and that you ought to be happy with a bad reputation. You know, some, some Christians go out into the world uh, almost happy that people don't like them you know, almost, you know, uh, wanting rejection or, or, you know, just kind of being rude. In fact, um, there's a book called Unchristian, uh, written by a guy named David Kinnaman, and uh, he's a researcher for the Barna Group. He did research where he asked people who were non-Christians what their image of Christians was. And uh, what Kinnaman concluded was, based on all his findings, was that Christians have an image problem. He had seven things that people thought about Christians. He said that when I asked non-Christians what they thought about Christians, this was their response. Christians are hypocritical. um, They were uncaring. They were homophobic, sheltered, too political, and judgmental. Now, this is not good. There is a sense in which if we have an image problem, I mean, this is not good. We ought to want to have a good reputation. We want to be viewed as caring and loving and compelling, right? Uh, Peter, later on in verse 12, he even makes the point, he says, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, yeah, they may reject you, but don't, you shouldn't want this. I mean, you should act in such a way that even if they don't understand you or think your beliefs are crazy, they still might say, you know, I wouldn't mind hiring one because they're just so honorable. I wouldn't mind if my daughter married one because they're just so loving and caring. 
right? We ought to be concerned about our image in the world. We ought to have a good reputation as Christ followers. Uh, you should not be hated because you're a jerk, in other words. But what Peter is saying is that when you attach yourself to Jesus, don't be surprised when you're rejected. Don't be surprised when you find it really uncomfortable to align yourself with some of the teachings of Jesus and some of the things that Jesus said about himself. And this is so hard for me. I want Christianity to be compelling. You know, I want people to believe in Jesus. I want people to love Christianity. I want people to love Jesus. I want people to be compelled into the church. And because of that, I can tend to soften the hard edges, right? You know, I kind of downplay the things that are more offensive that Jesus said. I might downplay the exclusivity of Jesus. I might downplay some of the things he said about sexuality. I might downplay some of the things he said about giving to the poor and loving your neighbor and going the second mile and turning the other cheek. I could want Christianity to be, to, to be so compelling that I soften the hard, crunchy edges. And Peter says, don't do that. Jesus was a scandal, and if you're going to associate with him, part of your identity is that you bring the scandal with you into the world. Don't be ashamed of that. Last week, my brother, uh, a couple weeks ago, he preached on uh, racism uh, in the church. And uh, it was hard because my brother's like me. He's a people pleaser. I think Sam said that a couple weeks ago. And he said there were people in the church that just got mad. He said, I got emails. I got criticism. And he says it was just so hard. And I was like, Josh, you know, some, if you're never offending anybody in your preaching, something's wrong. There's no offense. There's no scandal. In fact, a good test for yourself is, is do you ever offend anybody? Are you, do you ever feel rejected because of your Christianity? If you, if, if, woe to you if all men think well of you is what Jesus said. And if everybody loves you and you're never offensive and, you're, and nobody ever rejects you, then maybe something's wrong. If everybody hates you, that's a problem. Maybe you're being too offensive. But if you're never rejected, well, maybe you're compromising. Maybe you're distancing yourself from, from your identity. Peter says, listen, it's a privilege. Don't, don't be surprised. Don't be angry. Don't be defensive. Don't retaliate. Man, if, if people reject you because of Jesus, that's a privilege. I say this is bad news, but it's actually kind of good news, isn't it? Well, let's look at the good news then. The, the, the bad news, Peter says, listen, if you're being rejected, hey, don't worry. Uh, it just shows that you're, you're linking yourself to Jesus that inevitably leads to a place where you're losing power and, and influence in the culture. Don't be surprised or angry about that. That's kind of normal. Well, what's the good news of our identity? Well, look at Peter switches metaphors here. He mixes the metaphor, and uh, he was talking about a, a building and the chief cornerstone, but uh, he goes on, and, and now he's going to talk about the people in the building. Uh, what do they look like? What is, how does Jesus shape their identity? In verse 9, he says, but, but you, I want you to know this about you. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is saying, yeah, so, so this is a two-edged sword here. This, there's two sides to your identity. On the one hand, the world rejects you, but that's not the end of the story. 
there is something incredibly affirming about who you are. And Peter goes on here, and he creates this list, this kind of litany of incredibly affirming things that are now true about you when you identify yourself with Jesus. Uh, the key words through this section here are the words, you are. He just says, you are a chosen generation. You are, you are, you are. If you're ever going to be resilient in the face of rejection, you need to know who you are. Peter says, first, uh, when you associate yourself with Jesus, he, Jesus, he says, you are a chosen generation or a chosen race. That's the first thing that you are, right? The same thing that's true about Jesus is true about you. He was rejected on the one hand, but it says Jesus also was chosen and precious. That's now true about you. You are now chosen. You are now a chosen generation, just as Jesus was the elect of God and the chosen one of God, when you associate yourself with him, you are now chosen. Now, what this means is that you, it's not an accident that you're a Christian. It's not like you just stumbled into Christianity one day and, and you kind of walked in the door with nobody noticing. Uh, what it means is that you are a Christian by the choice of God. Before the foundation of the world, before you were even born, God chose you. God knew your name, and he loved you. And he brought you into his family. He intended to do it. You're not some nameless, faceless person in the crowd. God, on purpose, chose you to be part of his family. Now, you think about adoption. Uh, one of the main metaphors of the Christian faith is that now you are adopted into God's family. The beauty of adoption is that the child is chosen. You know, you are, you are chosen on purpose. You are brought into God's family. That's a beautiful thing. You are adopted by God. Now, someone says, well, why did God choose me? Why did God elect me? Why does God want me in his family? I mean, what's, what is the basis of God's choosing me? I have no idea. <laughs> why does God love you? I don't know I don't know. It's not because you were choice. It's not because you were especially more hardworking than anybody else. You were better than anybody else. God chose you because he chose you. God loves you because he loves you. And what that means is that there is nothing you can do to stop God from loving you. Such wonderful, beautiful news. Do you know this about yourself? And Peter goes on. He says, not only are you a chosen generation, he says, you're a royal priesthood. That's who you are. What does it mean to be a royal priesthood? Well, a, a priest was a person who had access to God. The, the priest was appointed to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple in the Old Testament. Uh, the priests were, were the only appointed ones who had the privilege of standing before God, of being in God's presence. And Peter says, you need to know this about yourself. You, all, you, you have the privilege and you have the... Uh, you know, the, the, the power to stand in God's presence. You have access to God if you're a Christian. What wonderful news. What an amazing thing to know about yourself. God loves you, and he's made a way through Jesus Christ to, to invite you into his presence so that you could stand before him forgiven and unashamed as his child. Uh, there's a picture in, uh, it's an old picture in Time Magazine of JFK in the old Oval Office, and he's got JFK Jr. under the desk, and he's playing Legos down there. Anybody seen, remember that one? It's pretty iconic. And I, I love the picture because uh, here, the little boy is in the Oval Office, this prestigious uh, place where 
uh, really only important people go in there, and you could only come in if you were invited and if you had some sort of title. And not just anybody comes into that office. But here, little JFK Jr. is playing Legos under the desk. He has the status to bang open the door of the president's office and sit there like he belongs. The same is true of you if you're a Christian. You belong in God's presence. He's invited you there. You are accepted into beloved. You are a royal priesthood. And Peter goes on and he says, not only that, but you are God's own special people. You're God's own special possession. And up there, he says that Jesus was chosen and precious. Peter says, if you're a Christian, you are precious to God. You're his own special possession. Did you know that about yourself? You might think, well, I'm not very special. Uh, you know, nobody's really wanted me. I'm not that big of a deal. Well, well listen, in God's eyes, you are precious. I don't know if you use that word precious very much, but I often don't use precious very often. It's not a word that I use. The only time I ever think about using the words is when I think about my kids. My kids are precious. And what it means is that uh, they're, they're more valuable than words can express. You know, you look at them, and they're just more loved and more valuable and, and more important to you than words can even express. And this is how God feels about you. You are his own special, precious people. Uh, even the Lord of the Rings, that's another place where you hear the word precious. You remember Gollum? And he called the, the ring his precious. You know, the precious was his most valued object of affection. The, the precious is what he wanted more than anything else. He'd do anything for the precious. He'd give his life for the precious. And you are God's precious. He would give anything for you. Your value to him is beyond words. How do I know that I'm so precious to God? Well, you know how valuable you are to him because he was willing to give his son for you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son for the world. No greater love does a man have than this that he lays down his life for his friend. How do you know that you're precious to God? Well, you, you see that God gave everything for you. God spilled the blood of his own precious son to get you. You are just that precious. You are just that valuable. He goes on, once you were not a people, you had no identity, you were just out there in the world, nameless, faceless, but he says, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see what an affirmation this is? Do you ever stop and think about who you are? And what a difference it would make if you actually knew this. I think it was Carl Rogers. He's a, a, a therapist of the 20th century. Uh, he, he started a client-centered therapy. And he said this one time. He says, you know, the problem with people as I have come to know them is that by and large, they despise themselves and regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. He says, I've, I've sat with people for years and years and years, and here's my observation. People, by and large, despise themselves and regard themselves as worthless and unlovable. Well, guess what? If you are a Christian, you are precious to God. You are worth everything to him. He gave his only son for you. And this is the good news of your identity. 
Okay, so where are we? We looked at the bad news of our identity. It means a scandal. It means uh, the, the normal kind of situation of a Christian in the world is on the margins. So don't be surprised if you are. Well, how can I, how can I live like that? Well, on the other hand, you are precious to God. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. You have a bedrock solid identity. Well, how does this identity, this is the third point, how does this identity enable us to be resilient in the face of rejection? Let me just think about this for a little while. And you could probably guess in, as you think about this, I mean, how would knowing who you are give you a strength against being rejected? How would that give you a confidence? There's a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer again. He says this. He says, In the New Testament, our enemies are those who harbor, harbor hostility against us, uh, not those against whom we cherish hostility. For Jesus refuses to reckon with such a possibility. The Christian must treat his enemy as a brother and in return, and return his hostility with love. His behavior must be determined not by the way others treat him, but by the treatment he himself receives from Jesus. Here's what Bonhoeffer is saying. He's saying, you know, in, in order to love somebody that doesn't love you back, it takes resilience. Uh, as a Christian, you're not allowed to hate your enemy. So if you're out there, uh, you know, and, and you, you know, feel like you're being rejected or, or somebody uh, makes fun of your beliefs, you shouldn't retaliate. You shouldn't get back at them. You shouldn't be defensive or angry. What Bonhoeffer says is that you ought to love your enemy. Well, how do you do that? How can you love somebody that doesn't love you? You must learn to detach your identity from their approval and attach it to something out there. And this is exactly what Bonhoeffer says. Notice at the end of his quote, he says, the Christian's behavior must be determined not by the way others treat him, but by the treatment of he, he himself receives from Jesus. So in other words, because Jesus loves me, because Jesus accepts me, I am so secure in who I am that I could love somebody who doesn't love me back. One-way love requires a stable identity, a resilient identity. Uh, another thing that this re uh, identity gives us is courage. You know, you think about this. Uh, to live in the world where you're being rejected for your beliefs, it takes courage, doesn't it? Because if you don't want to be like me and, and, and soften kind of the hard edges, you kind of need courage to do that, don't you? Well, the way you get courage is by knowing who you are. I was a pastor back in California before I came here, and there was this big guy in the congregation. His name was John Manson. He was like six, seven. He was a big, big hands, you know, big feet, a real deep Lou Frigno kind of a voice. And uh, John Manson tells a story one time where he was out at night in downtown Long Beach, and some young high school kids came up and, and uh, demanded that they, he give them their, his money. And John said, I was terrified, and so I just started booking it the other way. I ran and ran until I made it to the store that I was going to. And he says, as I was in the store, something happened. He said, I started thinking to myself, you know what? I'm 6'7". I've got a Lou Ferrigno voice. Look at these hands. Why am I running from these high school kids? He says, look at who I am. And, and he just was like, man, that was silly of me. And then he leaves the store, and he goes out, and he sees the kids again. And so he decides to play a little dirty trick on him. He says, goes up, he says, hey! And he says, those kids got a look of terror on their face, and they just ran in the other direction. 
In other words, he said, I got courage when I realized who I was. You need to know who you are. This creates courage. You don't need to be liked by everybody. You don't need to be loved by everybody. You, you are loved by God. He has chosen you. This should create courage. Somebody says, well, doesn't it create arrogance? Won't you become a bully if you, if you think so highly of, of your, your new identity? Well, not really. Because what is a bully? A bully is not somebody who's secure in who they are. A bully is somebody who's insecure, who has a fragile ego. And when you have a redeemed ego, a redeemed identity, this should give you a humble courage. I think also uh, this new identity will give you resilience because it helps you to create friendships. You know, here's the deal. I, I think that even though we, are, we have this identity that creates a scandal, I think that we ought to be so compelling that we actually create friendships with people on the outside. You know, with a person that, that even though they think you're, maybe they think you're weird and your values don't make sense, they think you're narrow-minded and exclusive and all that stuff is hard, they still think, you know what? There's something about this person. There's a security there. There's a humility there. There's a love there that I just cannot deny. I think when you know your identity, you don't have to be defensive. You don't have to create enemies, at least more than there, there needs to be. You don't have to be, uh, you don't have to retaliate. You don't have to be mean. I think when you know who you are, you can be a friend to somebody that doesn't know Jesus. And maybe one day that friendship might turn into the person actually learning to love the Jesus that you love. I don't know if you, you, you're being rejected today. I don't know what it's like for you when you think about rejection, but here's what I need to tell you, is that the only way you're going to face rejection with resilience is by knowing who you are. You need to know your identity. You need to, to know what it means now that you are attached and aligned and defined by Jesus Christ. You are chosen. You are precious. You are accepted. And you are rejected, but not my Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for this passage about the identity that we have as Christians in the world. It is such a, a resilient identity. And, and God, I pray, Lord, that you would affirm us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of who we are. For those of us who feel um, like they don't belong, like they're on the margins, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the rock-solid bedrock identity that we have as your people. Give us courage, God, to identify with you, even when that means uh, losing power and influence. Give us courage, we pray. And God, we also pray that you fill us with love, a love that comes from knowing that we are so precious to you. Uh, do that in us and for us. In Jesus' name, amen.